0: early in his ministry, before the crowds, before the rumours, before the threats, Jesus attended a wedding in Cana. It was just the sort of event that Jesus was known to love, packed with eating and drinking, music and laughter, the scent of roasted lamb mingling with the perfume of all the flower garlands, the sweet taste of pomegranate and raisins, dates and honey, a roar of animated conversations between family and friends, punctuated by the music of the bangles clinking around dancing wrists and ankles. In first century Palestine, even modest weddings were marked by three or four days of feasting. Some events are so significant that they take far more than a single gathering or afternoon. And this, the whole village is there because this is a village-wide event. In fact, in many cultures and parts of the world today, a wedding would still be a four-day festival. We've officially entered a national period of mourning following the death of the Queen, simply because to mention it once and move on doesn't seem like the appropriate civic response. Some things take more than a single moment to mark. So the whole village is there. So when the wine runs out, The hosts, quite possibly relatives of Jesus, and without much money to spare, face huge social embarrassment. Wine at that time, in this era, was not a luxury or an investment. The scarcity of water and its frequent contamination made wine a necessity for cooking, nourishment and hospitality. Along with grain and with oil, the presence of wine was taken also to indicate God's blessing on a community while its absence symboled a curse. You may have felt the same way when you've arrived at a dinner party to see what is or isn't on the table. Wine was a staple. Wine was the stuff of life. And so concerned for their hosts, Mary informed Jesus of the situation apparently expecting her son to do something in response. Now, according to the account that we have here in John's Gospel, and this wedding doesn't appear in Matthew, Mark or Luke, we only have it in John, Jesus resists at first. And we have this slightly odd exchange that I suspect would make a lot more sense if we had the benefit of observing their facial expressions and hearing their tone of voice. My mother can say a lot with her facial expression and her tone of voice. I suspect she's not the only one. Jesus, it seems, changes his mind. Even the Messiah, it seems, knows that there are times when it's easier to just do what your mother has asked you to do. And so he instructs the servants to fill six great empty stone pots with water. Now these would have been used for Jewish purification rituals. Each pot held between 20 and 30 gallons and the servants filled them to the brim. And so when the party planner, the wedding planner, draws from the pots and takes a sip, they can't believe it. The water has turned into wine. And there are gallons and gallons of it, more than they could ever need. This, John tells us, was the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. It's a strange way to start a ministry, I suggest, turning water into wine. And what sort of sign was it anyway, ensuring that a local wedding feast was able to carry on? It might be tempting, it's often tempting, I think, to dismiss the wedding at Cana as not particularly significant, almost a magic trick, just Jesus flexing his messianic muscles before getting to the real work of restoring sight to the blind and helping the paralyzed off their mats. But if we do that, this is only because we have somehow taken on board and imbibed the idea that God doesn't care about our routine realities. That God's glory doesn't reside in the everyday stuff of life, just waiting to be seen. And friends, this morning I suggest to you that this would be a mistake. Because God works through life. God works through people. God works through physical, tangible, material reality to communicate God's presence in our lives. God doesn't meet us Outside and beyond life, God meets us through the things that happen to us, through the people around us, and through the sacraments of the church, like baptism and communion, where in some way we encounter the mystery and the majesty of God. This is why these things are important to us, why we continue to share bread and wine together 2,000 years after Jesus lived died and was raised to life again. They help us see bread and wine, sunflowers, food banks, buffets at the wake, bouquets at the wedding. It's all a call to each of us to pay attention because God is here. It's a call to pay attention because this matters and these things are holy. This week I came across some writings by someone named Milton Brasher Cunningham who just sounds interesting, doesn't he? Um, But he was a chef, a professional chef who gave up chefing to become a minister. And he put it like this when he said sacredness requires specificity. It would help if I was more confident with the word. Sacredness requires specificity. No, you know what I mean. The grand themes of theology have their place, but love, the love of God, takes root in the specific moments when we voluntarily and intentionally enter one another's pain. It's why over recent days, talk moved very quickly from grand matters of state to people sharing their own reflections Even if you follow the live news feed on the BBC website, they were asking for pictures and stories of people's own encounters with the Queen. It can't be understood properly in the abstract. It has to be grounded. It has to be based in the reality of our lives and our stories in order for it to be understood. And I think there's something significant about this when it comes to sharing one another's pain you see, when it's difficult, when it's harder work in this life, when we don't necessarily get what we want, when it all seems to go wrong, and this can be the case in all sorts of different situations, can't it? At work, with our family, at church, wherever you have a community of people, really. In those times, it's tempted to do whatever is needed to avoid the pain, including avoiding others who are in pain lest their pain impact us also. I can't find where to attribute the quote. But as I've been thinking about this week, I was reminded of a quote. I don't think I'm making this up. I'm sure this is genuine from somewhere. A great theologian, almost certainly in Latin America, was talking and saying, you say that you're a friend of the poor, then tell me their names. Tell me their names. Who has sat at your table? Whose story do you know? Whose pain have you entered into? It can't be done in the abstract, is the point. The fine words are never enough. It's not enough. And we might not be feeling that personally this morning. It would be my heartfelt prayer that none of you were in that space at any moment. But it can get harder and harder, it seems, to avoid that feeling in the world, isn't it? Even before the last few days, this winter feels like it might be bleak and challenging already. With more and more demands and ever fewer resources. But if our chef-turned-minister Milton is right, and love takes root in specific moments when we voluntarily and intentionally enter one another's pain, and I think he is then that says quite something quite different to us about how we are to walk the way of faith in this world. It calls us to stay with the pain, to embrace vulnerability, to resist the urge to simply seek a better horse, to trust in the God who came and stayed amongst us. The love Jesus shows for each of us goes far beyond what is easy, and took and takes no account of what is convenient. Our whole faith is bound up in the idea that the love of God was embodied and chosen and lived out in the person of Jesus, a specific person at a specific place at a specific time. God came as one of us. And so this morning, friends, in whatever context you need to hear it, hear the call not to simply rush away from the pain but instead to know that God is with you in it. God is with us in all the moments of this life. And part of how we help each other understand that is by being there for one another, by sharing in that pain, sharing our joy, sharing our time, sharing our tables, not hiding our messes. Now, we don't use the word sacrament much. It's a very churchy word, but it's simply derived from a Latin phrase which means to make holy. And when hit with the glint, the light of the love of God, exceptionally ordinary things can become remarkably holy. And when received with open hands in the spirit of thanksgiving and hope, the signs and wonders of Jesus never cease. Even the simplest chore can become a sacrament. I think I've shared with you the story before about one of my theology tutors who refuses to have a dishwasher in his house, even though he has the means by which to own one. Because for him, throughout his life, washing up has become a sacrament. It's not a path that I've chosen to walk, I will share with you. <laughs> but for him, as he washes up, he prays. And he uses washing up as a time to pray prayers of confession and think about the dirt being washed away and the glory of the new and clean thing that emerges. And so every day, I think it's an excuse to get away from the dinner table, just occasionally, like on Christmas Day when you all volunteer to wash up. He has this moment where it almost becomes holy with the fairy liquid and the side plate. And so recognising how that has become a sacrament, he's refusing to change that because he doesn't want to lose that. Perhaps you might have similar things in your day. But at this wedding in Cana, the gallons and the gallons of wine point to us about and talk to us about a generous God, a God who never runs out of love and of holiness. This is the God who, much to the chagrin of Jonah, saved the rebellious city of Nineveh. The God who turned five loaves of bread and a couple of fish into a lunch to feed thousands. This God is like a vineyard manager who pays a full day's wage just for one hour's work. Or like a shepherd who leaves their flock in search of the one that has gone astray. Or like a parent who comes home to find their errant, who welcomes home their errant child with a robe and a ring, and a feast. We have a choice, each and every day, to join the revelry, to imbibe the sweet wine of undeserved grace, or to pout like Jonah, argue fairness like the vineyard employees, and resent our own family like the prodigal's older brother. Friends, quite simply, at our best, the church, the sisters and brothers of Christ that we are, You and me, we're at our best when we do what we do by feeding and healing and forgiving and comforting and welcoming home the people God loves. We're at our worst whenever we're tempted to withhold the sacraments in an attempt to lock God into a theology, a list of rules, a doctrinal statement, a political outlook or a building, whenever we think there might not be enough and so we must work out who is not to have any. That is when we are at our worst. Because the truth is our God is in the busi- the business of transforming ordinary things into holy things. And scraps of food into feasts. And empty purification jars into fountains of fine wine. For right at the very heart of the story of our Lord and our Saviour. Is the truth that in the darkest moment. When the pain was beyond bear, When all was lost When confusion reigned and hope seemed all but gone, a tiny flicker of light remained. And little droplets of water began to turn into wine. And new shoots began to string up through the soil. And resurrection became a reality. God knows God's way around the world, so there's no need to fear. And no need to hold back, no need to stake a claim to ensure that you get it and somebody else doesn't. Friends, with the Lord who pulled Jesus from the grave, the future is bigger than the past. There is always enough. Just taste and see. There's an abundance in the life of God that will stretch far beyond anything you could ever need in this life. There is always and ever enough thanks be to God Amen